This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. No news, just stories. You want to hear screaming and yelling and opinions? Tune in somewhere else. And we love to hit the culture. We love to see what's on TV. And it's the golden age of television right now. And our favorite show here on Our American Stories, that's right, Shark Tank. We love it because it's everything we love about America, that anything is possible through hard work, through innovation, through entrepreneurship, and just sheer fun. Because these people are just having fun. They're pursuing their dream. And really rich people who were pursuing their dream 20 years ago now have money. Now they want to give their money to other people who are pursuing their dreams. And what a great story each week. What a series of stories you see each week. Actually, a few different people pitch. And that's why we do the show. And this show is everything Adam Smith tried to accomplish writing Wealth of Nations, except it's a hell of a lot more fun to watch than read. Well, this week we meet Chelsea and Leanne, who need money for their business. And their business, well, it's called Lollyware. Hi, I'm Chelsea. And I'm Leanne. We're from New York City, and we're seeking $150,000 for 10% of our company, Lollyware. Lollyware is a new category of sustainable materials that you can eat. That's right. I just ate my cup. We call this new category (laughs) biodegradable. It's both biodegradable and edible. It's a new and exciting eating and drinking experience that offers fun flavor combinations for both beverages and desserts. Imagine drinking your cold brew coffee in our Madagascar vanilla cup or even a margarita in a citrus cup. Lollyware is a delicious alternative to disposable cups destined for the landfill. Biodegradable. That's bio-regrettable. Mm. That is awful. Well, we like these girls, though, and... The cups aren't just edible, they're environmentally friendly as well. Our cups go from cup to soil in 60 days. They're 100% vegan, gluten-free, and made with organic ingredients. But the cup is just the beginning. With Lollyware, we're creating a plastic-free revolution and giving people a reason to get excited about sustainability. Sharks, we invite you to eat your cup and to create a biodegradable world with Lollyware. Oh, they said it again. <laughs> well, the sharks begin to bite. And they start to wonder, what are these cups made of? This cup is really delicious. I mean, I could see somebody eating your cup as a dessert. What is it made of? (laughs) It's a vegetable gelatin, so it's an all-vegan version of gelatin. It's 100% gluten-free. It it tastes a little bit like licorice, like a... Yahoo Food wrote about us, and they thought the cup was like an adult fruit roll-up. All our flavors and colors come from fruits and vegetables. It's pretty impressive. So, as we always want to know, Alex, what are their sales looking like, and who are their consumers? Who is your consumer so far? So, we launched sales three months ago, and we have $110,000 in sales, and we're partnering with a $30 million event planning company in New York City called Save the Date, who has just signed a $1.3 million letter of intent to sell Lollyware to all of her events in New York City. We also are signed with one of the largest food distribution companies, they just called you up and said, we love you. We heard about you. We're coming. They saw we us at a trade show. We were at Cater Source in Las Vegas. In one day, we sold 3,500 cups. Wow. It's not bad, but, you know, we always have that one question, Alex, and what's that? What are your margins? So what it you- costs us 97 cents to make each cup right now, and we're selling it to food service for 150 per cup. And we're looking to take those costs down dramatically over the next year. We anticipate that it'll go down to 50 cents. What? That is impressive. Impressive, ladies. 
So here, the girls tell the sharks how much money they've raised, and a feeding frenzy ensues between the sharks. Currently, we're in the middle of a $1 million raise. We're 30% through. We have another 100000 committed. Chelsea, look, I, I love it. Uh, I think you need more money. I'm really not interested in putting up the 150000 for 10%. You have an outstanding amount of $600,000. Um, I want to participate. I mean, I'd be interested for getting more equity. Sure. What's, if we put up the entire six hundred. Yeah. But I don't want to put it up on my own. I mean, I'm happy okay. to go in with anybody else. If we they would want love me. to close out the round with the sharks. How much? How much is left in the round? And six hundred. We could do twenty-five percent. Chelsea, look. Done. I, done. Now, when we've been doing this a long time, has that ever happened before? Not like that. Not like that. No. You always see Cuban jumping in and taking it over. Oh, I know. They're all so mad at him. (laughs) So Mark, Barbara, Robert, and Mr. Wonderful fight it out over this deal. I'll go in. I I did a great investment with Mark for a long time. I don't think we need more than two people. No, we're fine. Pure equity. equity. No, no, before you go, can I say something? We'd love to hear what Barbara has to say. No, I would like to say something. I prefer Mark as a partner because he's got three times as much money as all the other little men here. Ouch. I've done very well with Mark, even though we sometimes fight on here. Yes. We have a real offer, 600000 for 25%. Do we have a deal? Ouch. Mark has much more money than all the little men here. You know, women can take liberties like that. Can you ever imagine a man <laughs> taking liberties like that with a group of women on this stage? She didn't know it, though, that herself, she's among that group, too. She's got a lot less money than Mark. Exactly. So, who do the girls go with? We would love to accept Mark and Barbara as our team Bollywood. Thank you so much. Wow. And for Mr. Wonderful, it's just really remarkable. We were just commenting before the segment started. He just really almost never does any deals. And they always are about what? What are they? Royalties. Royalties. Where are the royalties? And if it's not a royalty business, he just like dumps on the business. Like there's no other way in the world to make money but through royalties. But what would this show be like? It would be like Seinfeld. What would Seinfeld be like without George? I've always asked this question. You could lose Kramer. You could even lose Seinfeld. But if you ever lost George, I mean, I guess you would lose what? You think half of the plots of every show? Isn't George the one who gets almost everyone in a mess every time? That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, Lee. So these, these women are grateful to get a much better deal than they'd asked for. And again, that doesn't happen often here on Shark Tank. And here's how they close things out. This is a really surreal moment for Leanne and I. We went in asking for 150000 for 10%. And we're expecting to have to offer a lot more equity for that amount because we're a very new company. And the fact that we're walking out with our whole round finished by our top two sharks, it's really surreal. We couldn't be more excited. <laughs> We couldn't be more excited for you. That is what America is all about. A couple of young kids coming in there with a good idea and a billionaire and a lady who made a fortune in the real estate business throwing down with them. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to tell you stories about everything. The arts, business, 
education, housing. Uh, we're going to be doing regular housing beats for the Wall Street Journal housing reporter because there's some fascinating new trends happening in that area. And health, the areas and subjects you care about. And today we're going to be doing an interesting business story. And we like to dig into the areas where business and politics collide. And in the end, in ways that are not necessarily good for consumers and for competition. And that brings us to a report that our intrepid field correspondent Alex Cortez brings us. And it is one bizarre report. In America, we're used to hearing strange news reports like this one. Linda Carson, ABC7, would you not eat my pants? Ah! Or this one. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community. Many of you bring binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looks like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun? Say yeah! yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. But perhaps stranger than them all is one that Wisconsinites saw on their televisions the other day. Low prices are part of the Meyer business model, but are they too low? The company says it's never encountered this type of situation in any other state where it operates. You did hear that right. They said too low. Here's how a rival TV station put it. But now the regional chain faces an unusual problem, accused of breaking Wisconsin law by offering deals that are too good. Deals that are too good? So good that they might be illegal? When we heard this, our brains and our wallets were so unsettled that we had to find out what on earth is going on here and whether we were still even on the planet Earth. And so we asked an expert, the president of a think tank called the McIver Institute, and more importantly, Brett Healy is a Wisconsin resident and expert shopper. Brett said the law came from dead people. Well, Wisconsin's minimum markup law is a relic from the distant past. Uh, It was originally uh, passed back in 1939, and essentially the law makes it illegal for retailers and wholesalers to sell merchandise at a discount. Something that Meyer says it has never encountered before. Meyer's spokesman says this is a bit peculiar for us. We're not accustomed to regulations that limit our customers' ability to save money when they shop with us. Specifically, it's illegal to sell an item at such a discount that it's a loss for the company. If a company would like to offer you a discount on a particular product so that you're introduced so their product line, uh, you know, I, I don't know why state governments uh, should be in the business of preventing that. This business model of offering what are called loss leaders isn't unusual. It's all around us. When we go to AT&T and buy an iPhone, they're actually selling it to us at a loss, a big loss, more than 50% off. But they're also introducing us to their cell phone service. When you buy a Kindle Fire from Amazon... They sell it to you for less than half the price of their competitors and have introduced you to purchasing Kindle books on Amazon, as well as all the other products that Amazon sells. Take me away with you, my love. And if you're a gamer and have an Xbox, you have benefited too. Microsoft sold it to you at a large loss for them, but they've also introduced you to their whole line of Xbox games. Loss leaders are really just marketing by another name. 
a company could spend even more money on advertising to introduce you to their products. Or they could decide to offer you an even better deal. Which would you rather have? So who is ensuring that this minimum markup law is kept is the law of the land in the state of Wisconsin. The law is being used by certain retailers to stave off uh, real competition and it allows them a nice profit margin that uh, you don't generally see anywhere else in the country. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Wisconsin consumers are the ones that are hurt the most by this law. There's a few retailers in particular who have a very strong interest in keeping prices higher. It also requires that certain products, uh, gasoline, alcohol, and tobacco, be marked up essentially 9.18% before it's sold to uh, the public. A guaranteed 9% profit margin for gas, alcohol, and tobacco providers. Nice business if you can get it, but not a nice business if you're a Meyer and you want to offer lower prices than what a 9% profit margin allows. You can't. And not so nice for the rest of us either. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Wisconsin consumers are the ones that are hurt the most by this law. And if you really wanted to do something about high gas prices, you would repeal the minimum markup law here in Wisconsin and allow competition to enter into the market and force retailers to compete for my business, giving me the best price for the best value of the product. It's estimated that Wisconsin gas prices are 25 to 30 cents higher per gallon due to this minimum markup law, taking between $250 to $300 a year out of the pockets of average families and straight into the pockets of wealthier business owners. The law is being used by certain retailers to stave off uh, real competition, and it allows them a nice profit margin that uh, you don't generally see anywhere else in the country. The average profit margin in America is 7.5%. For restaurants, it's about 6%. Walmart's is 3%. One-third of the guaranteed profit margin these select businesses are receiving. Some say that the minimum markup law is needed so that small businesses can compete with larger ones. Proponents of the law claim that it's needed to protect small mom-and-pop shops across Wisconsin First, Iowa and Minnesota do not have a minimum markup law, and yet small businesses are flourishing in those states. Oh, you betcha, yeah. It's this competition between big and small that not only drives lower prices, it also drives greater innovation. Businesses have no choice but to innovate if they're going to attract customers over their competitors. And we, the customers, we benefited from this fierce and fruitful competition that we call capitalism. And so have the entrepreneurs long-term with the competition driving them to find what truly is their own unique niche in delivering customer value. This is the story of the Meyer Company itself, too. Founded by the Dutch immigrant Hendrik Meyer, he had a single tiny grocery store in Greenville, Michigan. 51. And one day, the A&P announced that they were coming to town. A much larger and national grocer who could offer much lower prices and thrive on a much lower profit margin. But Hendrick didn't complain about it. He didn't run to the politicians and ask them to do something about it. As many others in that Depression era did, he did something about it himself. He innovated. He doubled the size of his store, hoping that he can grow his sales volume, figuring that it was the only way he could drive his prices even lower 
and keep them competitive with the AMP. Otherwise, as he put it, I'd just be another small grocer with somewhat lower than average prices, but not the lowest. It was all a gamble, a huge gamble, but he had to take it. And we're all better off for it because he had to take it. From that one tiny grocer spawned over 200 stores across the Midwest, stores that the people of Wisconsin are now loving with its entrance into the state. Oh, my God. Wow. Everything's for a dollar on this page? I'm thinking I need to go to Myers. Name brand sodas for a dollar. You really don't get that at Pick and Save. I love low prices. I think anybody would love low prices. Folks, these are the fruits of capitalism when we let it flourish and let businesses compete freely. Fruits that would be even greater if we were freer. If more Wisconsinites knew about the minimum markup law and knew that there was bureaucrats being paid with their tax dollars whose sole job is to prevent them from getting the best price possible on their products, I think they'd be outraged. And so I think the more we talk about this issue, the more and more people are going to wake up and demand that this antiquated 1939 law be changed and uh, uh, hopefully we can unleash the true power of competition here in Wisconsin and do away with the minimum markup law. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that, Alex. Really good. And thanks to the McIver Institute. And again, it's one of these stories that we dig into from time to time. This one for the consumer. Uh, Ultimately, these policies are all about picking winners and losers. And people going to their own government to petition their interest over a competitor's. And who in the end loses? Well, we know who loses. The American people lose. The customer loses. I think that's what so much of these elections are about. Again, we don't do that. We don't pick candidates. We're not talking about candidates here in Our American Stories. But we are talking about the stuff you care about. Low prices. Boy, we all care about that. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you'd like to hear this and all that we do here. American stories, and we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, American history, and our favorite subject is generosity, and the generous things Americans do for each other and do for the world, and we love that space of gratitude too, because in the end, when you have gratitude, happiness is possible, and if we can do anything with this show, that's one of the things we want to try and do here. Is just give people a little bit of light in their day each day. And it's why we love bringing you our sweet charity segment with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this great series. Carl has authored 11 books, 
including two from his on-the-ground reporting during the Iraq War. He has a storytelling cookbook and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. A graphic novel from a guy who is an aide to Daniel Patrick Moynihan and served as the chief domestic policy advisor to the President of the United States. He also lives in a houseboat, which more than anything should tell you that you're in for a treat. Take it away, Carl. When I was in college, I had a philosophy professor named Louis Dupre who told me a story I've never forgotten. He had a wonderfully generous friend with whom he eventually had a falling out for a surprising reason. This friend was unable to let Dupre be generous to him in return. Receiving gifts and favors can be lovely, but it's important to keep in mind that there is also a potent and irreplaceable joy of giving that most people need to express. There's lots of evidence that philanthropy does more than just help the recipients, that in givers as well, it fills deep human needs for meaning, happiness, and contentment that aren't easily satisfied otherwise. The joy of giving is a theme that comes up over and over in literature and history. Here's Ralph Waldo Emerson, for instance. Quote, It is one of the most beautiful compensations of life that no man can sincerely try to help another without helping himself. Or here's how Victor Hugo expressed it. As the purse is emptied, the heart is filled. John Bunyan put the sentiment in poetry. A man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. And this is an observation from Confucius. If you want happiness for a year, inherit a fortune. If you want happiness for a lifetime, help someone else. As these statements hint, giving is an ancient impulse. Way back in 347 BC, Plato donated his farm to support students at the school he had founded. The impulse to give is also nearly universal. Even people who have very little money are eager to make gifts and feel good when they do. Among American households with annual income under $25,000, close to 4 out of 10 still give charity to others in a typical year. A few winters ago, I read a wonderful, awful book called Breaking Night that tells the true story of a horrendously neglected girl and the kind people who intervened to help her succeed in spite of her upbringing. Looking back as a young adult, she writes, What was most moving about all of this unexpected generosity was the spirit in which people helped. It was something in their moods and in their general being, how they were smiling, looking me right in the eyes. She describes a woman named Teresa who came up to her and said, Since I didn't have any money to help you out, I thought I couldn't do anything for you at all. And then last night, I was doing my daughter's laundry. And I thought, how silly of me. Maybe you have laundry I could do for you. And every week, for the remainder of the author's time in school, Teresa picked up dirty clothes and returned them clean and folded, taking great pleasure in this little thing that she could do to help someone in need. Lots of research shows that this is a common phenomenon. In a 2008 paper published in the journal Science, three investigators gave study participants money, asked half to spend it on themselves, and the other half to give it to some person or charity. Those who donated the money showed a significant uptick in happiness. Those who spent it on themselves did not. Other academic work has shown that offering aid to others can actually make the giver healthier, lowering blood pressure, stress, illness, and mortality. In his book, Who Really Cares?, economist Arthur Brooks demonstrates that Americans who make gifts of money and time are more likely to prosper and more likely to be satisfied with life than non-givers who are demographically identical. 
Part of the magic of philanthropy is that giving not only helps the recipient, it also helps the giver. You need to appreciate that if you really want to understand the power of charity. In 2014, two Notre Dame social scientists published a book called The Paradox of Generosity, Giving We Receive, Grasping We Lose. These professors pulled together hundreds of national surveys and conducted years of in-depth interviews and group observations. Their conclusion was that, quote, the more generous Americans are, the more happiness, health, and purpose in life they enjoy. This association is strong and consistent. Generous practices actually create enhanced personal well-being. The association is not accidental, spurious, or an artifact of reverse causation. With all that social science talk out of their system, the researchers then conclude with a simple human observation. They write, People often say that we increase the love we have by giving it away. In this, generosity is like love. Great job on that, Carl. Sweet charity, generosity, a fundamental part of the American story on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Bernard Herrmann's remarkable soundtrack to Psycho. And when I hear that soundtrack, I think showers. And that, of course, leads us to Jesse's Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. The first guy that died with life insurance never knew if it was a scam. As a teenager, I was told not to trust anyone on the Internet and not to be stupid online. Now, I'm telling my parents the same things. <laughs> USB sounds like a backup plan in case the USA fails. <laughs> it's pretty dumb that I get a new driver's license every four years and it's made out of hard plastic. And I'm supposed to have my social security card for life and it's made out of paper. There's enough apps for finding friends, lovers, and soulmates. I want an app that helps me find my arch enemy. Using your old laptop to research buying a new one is like asking it to dig its own grave. Girl Scouts is basically a brand name cookie company that gets away with child labor. When I unsubscribe from a newsletter and get an email confirming that I've been unsubscribed, it feels like they needed to be the one to say the last word in an argument. Candlelight dinners weren't very special before the light bulb was invented. As an adult, I'm not eating nearly as much ice cream as 10-year-old me thought I would. My dog keeps bringing me the same toy. I wonder if that's his favorite toy or if he thinks it's my favorite toy. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people is a quote that discusses people. In FBI shows, cops are incompetent, unskilled simpletons who just get in the way. In cop shows, the FBI are bureaucratic, incompetent simpletons who just get in the way. The person who would proofread Hitler's speeches was a real-life grammar Nazi. <laughs> Casinos should let people play Monopoly with real money. Nothing says top of the food chain like squid ink calamari pasta. You're eating another animal 
and seasoning it with its own defense mechanism. At age 30, you've spent an entire month having birthdays over your lifetime. In a 500-day period, I could theoretically meet someone, get married, have a baby, and get divorced, and yet I'd still be using the same box of Q-tips. Shower thoughts. Oh, thank you, Jesse. And we love just featuring the work of our staff. And Jesse is our Cracker Jack executive producer. There's a few people in this country better at it, but he's just, he's wickedly funny, too. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for hot talk, turn the dial. Political talk, we don't do that here. It's stories and only stories, and periodically we dip into the culture because we like to talk about things that you wouldn't hear about anywhere else. And that goes with all the good news and good and positive stories you hear about the arts, about the culture here, about sports, and just about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I want to read for you the beginning of a National Review column that we're about to discuss. And it starts like this. If you look beyond recent headlines about race in America, here is a surprising truth. Most black men in America are doing just fine. Most black men are not poor. Most black men will not be incarcerated. Most black men are gainfully employed. And most black men will marry. Why haven't I heard this before? Asked Stefan Moore, a 49-year-old African-American father from Oklahoma City, after hearing one of us lecture this month. I'm so glad I brought my teenage son. He hasn't heard this message about black men. And this is Brad Wilcox writing, by the way, for National Review, Most Black Men Are Doing Just Fine, is the column. And the column is titled, Looking Beyond Ferguson and Baltimore, The good news about black men, it's a message we're thankful its authors Brad Wilcox and Nicholas Wolfinger are bringing to America. Brad, thanks for joining us. Lee, it's great to be here today. You bet. And Brad, by the way, is the director of the National Marriage Project, a professor of sociology at UVA, my alma mater. I went to law school there and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Brad, why aren't we hearing this message about more black men doing just fine than we would have ever thought? Well, you know, I think that there is certainly um, a big racial divide in American life, and we can focus on um, on that divide, um, and we can focus on the disparities, you know, that exist in American life. Um, but I think the focus, the most singular focus on that divide, um, blinds us to, you know, a different reality. And that reality is one that I articulated in that National Review piece, and that is, is that on many outcomes, I think most black men are doing just fine. And we can't lose sight of the fact that there has been considerable racial progress in many areas, not every area, but many areas in, in this country over the last half century. And, of course, just one indication of that progress that we've made as, as a country is the fact that we have you know, right now an African-American president. But looking beyond just the example of President Obama, we can, as I, you know, as I Note in the piece, um, look at the fact that a clear majority of black men are employed or in school. 
that the vast majority of black men will not be incarcerated, um, that a clear majority of black men are not poor, and that about 76% of black men um, in their 40s, you know, have, have gotten married. So there's a lot of, you know, of, of um, in a sense, pretty good news out there about black men that can get obscured in our conversations about places like Ferguson and Baltimore um, and, you know, the events that have taken place uh, in those two places. And to what degree might that have to do with the, the way that news is gathered in this country? I mean, obviously, hardcore conservatives may not want to see this on Fox News. This may not, may not be a story for Fox. And on the left, the liberal narrative of, well, you know, woe is every black person's story in the country, that perhaps, Brad, this one just doesn't fit the narrative that the media genuinely likes to enforce, depending on the political agenda of the, of the narrator? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it is the case that for both uh, journalists um, and producers on the left and the right, there is a, obviously a tendency to focus on conflict, on violence, and on, you know, uh, race through this sort of more negative prism. And, you know, so we have these, you know, these, these cases that are very serious cases, and, and we have problems along racial lines. But that, that focus on, you know, on the negative or on the conflict or on the violence crowds out a recognition, um, you know, that, again, the average black man is doing, you know, is doing pretty well. Um, and I think wh- where this is also, I think, pernicious is that there are plenty of, of um, black fathers and young black men, as, as was the case in Oklahoma City for me, who, who really don't know this story. And you don't realize that they're, you know, <clears throat> that at some level there are plenty of black men doing well, and they're, you know, um, and so it's, it's in a sense limiting the, the sort of horizon of possibility for them. But I think also the other, I think, precious part about this is that I think for many ordinary uh, white Americans, their own perceptions of African American guys in particular can be colored um, in a negative way by press coverage. Um, and these debates to make them look at black men through a more skeptical lens. Um, so I think that's, those are just sort of two of the ways in which our focus on the negative, um, doesn't, you know, do a service to, uh, to the truth and to racial relations here in the United States. You bet. And, you know, I think the one that may be pernicious and both are bad. Obviously, a white person thinking skeptically about black people is bad enough. But getting you to view yourself skeptically or your own people skeptically or your own situation uh, skeptically, I think may be an even more pernicious effect. Don't you, Brad? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that there are, um, you know, particularly judging by my experience in Oklahoma, I mean, there are a number of parents, you know, at this event that I was speaking at who were just kind of just surprised to hear the, the simple things that I said to you earlier today, and that is, is that they were surprised to learn that most black men, you know, um, are gainfully employed, are not poor, will not end up incarcerated, and will marry um, by the time they hit their 40s. They just, they, you know, they hadn't gotten that message, you know, from the schools or from, you know, the television news or from other outlets, and. And these were parents who had teenage black sons, and they were just worried about sort of their son's expectations about their future. Um, I felt like, look, if we had a more positive, I mean, but truthful, you know, uh, story to tell, um, it would affect sort of 
horizon of possibility that our black teenage sons have for their future. You bet. You have a new book out, Brad, and the title is Soulmates, Religion, Sex, Love, and Marriage Among African Americans and Latinos. And in it, you demonstrate why most black men are doing just fine. Why is that so, and especially compared to black men who aren't? What are the one or two or possibly even three top contributing factors to why those black men are doing fine? So one of the things that we talk about in the book, um, in Soulmates, which is with, uh, with Oxford University Press, is that the, um, the black church is one force um, in the lives of black men that is helping to foster better outcomes for black men. And we make the point that um, compared to white and Hispanic men and also Asian-American men as well, um, that black men are more likely to be regularly attending church, to be integrated in some kind of um, church community. And that's important because what we find is that black men who are church-going um, are less likely to be engaging in crime. They're less likely to be, not surprisingly, ending up incarcerated. Um, they're more likely to be gainfully employed. And they're more likely um, to get married. So, Again, part of the story here is that, um, just kind of to paraphrase what one sociologist said about religion, is that sort of black men came away stronger um, in our research from both personal prayer, but also from being involved, you know, in a church community where um, their lives were given, you know, support, encouragement, um, and um, uh, direction. So one of our respondents, who we mentioned in the National Review piece, for instance, Michael, uh, said that he's a comfort from his brother-to-brother group, his men's group, um, at his church in Brooklyn. He said, quote, I have all these people around, and they help us out, and they help us keep in line. So we know we can call some people if we're going through difficulties. You know, it's just comforting to know that God's provided that kind of thing for us. And Michael's sort of description of kind of a, a men's group being there in his corner for him is um, emblematic of the way in which the black church helps to support uh, black men, um, both kind of spiritually, but also even in terms of employment. They often rely upon church-based networks to find job opportunities that um, you know give them either a job in the first place or a better job in the second place. And we also know the impact that churches and people of faith are having inside prisons as well, Brad. I know that's not what your book's about, but my goodness, people of faith are doing remarkable work on the prison reform side for those black men who do end up on the other side of the law through a transgression or two that if he had been white or had some kind of wealth, he would not be in prison for as long. Uh, talk about that for a second, if you could. Well, there certainly have been efforts, um, you know, prison ministries that have had success in the Midwest and in Louisiana and Texas and reaching uh, you know, men who are incarcerated, and of course, a disproportionate share of those men are African Americans. So yeah, that's certainly part of the story. Is that, uh, in fact, one of the guys that we interviewed uh, here in Virginia talked about meeting, <clears throat> uh, meeting Christ uh, in prison, and we actually spoke to him when he was, you know, just living and working here in Central Virginia. Um, and uh, his experience certainly was that both his personal prayer and also his men's group were two key um, influences helping him steer clear of, um, you know, recidivism, of, of landing back in, you know, in trouble with the law and in prison. So, yeah, I think faith is, you know, is, is, is helpful both in terms of preventing incarceration in the first place and then helping guys behind bars um, take a better path once they get out of prison. Well, Brad, we thank you for this continued work you're doing in the marriage area and also now with soulmates, religion, sex, love, and marriage, among African-Americans and Latinos. 
And some news you just haven't heard before, and that's what we love to do here on Our American Stories. Bring you stories that, well, are actually happening in the country, but no one's reporting. Brad Wilcox, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me on today. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture this and all the work we do. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's what we do here. We tell stories. If you want a lot of arguments, political arguments, debates, hot talk, you got the wrong place. But if you want to hear great stories, moving stories about everything imaginable, from music to art to love to death to health to law, you got the right place. And you're going to love what we're about to talk about, because in the end, Anytime we can tell a story about individuals overcoming obstacles, we love to do it. The power of the individual, often we often talk about God as well. We're not any sectarian God, we're not into that. But just the power of faith in people's lives is seminal. And we want to talk about the good part of that, not the, the parts that divide us. And for this hour, we're going to talk about a book called Seeing Home. And it's the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. And we're very fortunate that Ed is able to join us right now live. Thanks for being here, Ed. Thank you, and Chris is with us also. Oh, fantastic. Ed, you were a baseball nut growing up, as so many of us here in America are sports nuts, and we all have our different sports, but my goodness. And by the way, it infuriates some in academia and even our parents that we love sports more than so many other things. But good luck changing that, Ed. Um, And and uh, it was a love you shared with and was nurtured by your dad, a dad who took you to this game. Talk about this game your dad took you to. Well, he he took me to many games, but the... Game you're talking about is October the third, nineteen fifty one. Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard around the world off the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a big, big giant fan. We were not at the game. We watched it on a twelve inch TV. And uh, I came home from school blowing bubble gum, and he said, "Stop it! The Giants are losing. I don't want to hear that." You know, and he was sitting there with his rosary beads in his hand and saying that. Hey, my Giants have to win. They haven't won since the late 30s. And uh, when Thompson hit the home run off of Ralph Branca into the left field seats, he went absolutely nuts. He uh, yelled at the windows, went to pull the dishes out of the closet to prepare supper, and he dropped them. And I grabbed my baseball glove, and I said, uh, Dad, I'm going outside to play ball. And I ran outside to play ball, and... Uh, we were in the projects, in the housing projects in Jersey City, the Lafayette Gardens. And I was a left-handed pitcher. 
I wore glasses because I had a little problem with my sight. <clears throat> I was a premature baby that caused uh, sort of some eye problems. So I always felt better that I could see without the glasses. So I took them off and put them in my back pocket and threw a pitch and a line drive came back and hit me between the eyes. And that was the last time I saw anything. But the love for the game I, I always had and still have to this day. And, and despite the game taking away your sight, you still loved it. And this seems so odd for people to wrap their heads around that we can love the things that sometimes hurt us. And that was an accident, and it doesn't, it didn't in any way change your view of the game, did it? it oh, not at all. And my parents, knowing the love that I had for the game, my mother... She read in the paper that Phil Rizzuto was going to be at the American Shops in Newark, brought me there, and um, she spoke to him on the side, and then he came over and said, Hey, Ed, I understand you're a big baseball fan. We started talking, and my father said, This is the scooter, Ed, Phil Rizzuto. And before I knew it, he gave me his home phone number and told me to keep in touch with him, and he said, I guess so you can't give me yours. Yours is unlisted. I said, Not at all. I can give it to you. And... Uh, from that time on to the day he died, we were best of friends in 56 years. And he called me right after I gave him my number and started taking me out and encouraging me all the time. And that was a great relationship. And then my mother wrote a letter to Leo DeRocha, who was then the manager of the New York Giants in 1951. And he gave me a day over at the Polo Grounds on 19, June 14, 1952. And uh, it was a day I'll never forget. And that was the day that I said, I want to go into baseball. I sat there just talking to the ball players and asking questions. They answered me like, hey, I was interviewing them. <clears throat> so that was my dream. And Rizzuto kept on saying to me, you have to get an education. You have to go further. No matter where I went, I went on to the New York Institute for the Blind, studied there for four years, then I went on to Seton Hall University and studied communications and had a hard time getting into baseball, but here I am. Amazing. Talk about another game, I think, as well, and and, and that's, well, Jackie Robinson and, and his story. And just about a minute here because we're going to come up against a break, Ed, and then when we come sure. back we'll dig even further and deeper into the book. But talk about Jackie Robinson as well. We know about Phil Rizzuto and his impact on your life. Talk about the great Jackie Robinson. Wow, Jackie Robinson, that, that was in uh, April of 1946, he played his first game in Roosevelt Stadium for the Montreal team, the Dodger Farm team. And my father said to me, we must go to that game. It's a historical thing, Ed, something you'll never forget. And uh, we went there, and Robertson hit a home run that day. And um, that, you know, that was history, uh, history in uh, American history, not just baseball. You bet. And then Robertson went on to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. You bet. And we're going to get back with more of Ed and, and Chris Lucas. The book is Seeing Home, and it's the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. And we're also uh, down the road. You might enjoy this, Ed. We're going to be doing Echoing Green. We're going to be looking back at some books about sports and life. And I don't know if you had a chance to ever read that book, Ed, but it's a remarkable story about the relationship between Bobby Thompson and Ralph Branca, the guy who hit the home run, the guy who threw the pitch, the hero and the goat. And it is an amazing and beautiful American story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of our work, all of our storytelling on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. And you can also mail in your stories. 
because we love to take the stories you tell us and tell them back to the American people. More after this message from our sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and there may have been no better call in the history of sports. I might put Secretariat's final legs of the race at Belmont in 1973. That was just an amazing call as well, and of course, the American win over the Russians in the Olympics in 1980. Uh, And those, I think, were perhaps the three bestest calls, but I think in the end, most sportcasters would probably pick that shot heard around the world call. This is Lee Habib again, and this is Our American Stories. The book and the story is Seeing Home, the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. You know, Ed, I wanted to just dig in before we move along with the story about this love of this game. And, you know, when you were 12 years old in the spring of 51, your mother's brother Eugene gave you a wool uniform jersey that he wore when he played semi-pro baseball in, in, in your New Jersey hometown. And, well, talk about the pride you felt as you put on that large, heavy, gray shirt with the number four <laughs> stitched on the back of it and the words Jersey City Eagles on it. Yes. Uh, that was my uncle Gene, who I love very much, and he gave me a uniform shirt that uh, <clears throat> I wore and uh, wore every day during the summer, no matter how hot it was. It was a wool uniform in those days. And uh, my mother, she used a scrub board every night and washed that uniform that I could wear it every day. That was my shirt for the summer. And I was very proud I would go out and play ball with that on. And uh, I, I, I was grateful that my uncle gave me that. And he was a big, big baseball fan as well as a semi-pro ball player. So... Uh, I was very proud to wear that. You know, you you have this life-altering day, as you had sort of alluded to in the earlier part of our interview, but can you take us back to that day when you were 12 years old and paint the picture for our audience? If it, and by the way, I think so many of us in our lives have this one day or two or three that literally change our lives. By the way, we also did an hour on Bear Bryant, and his players talked about how Coach instilled him in the idea that one play can change a game, and one moment can change a life. So be steady and be careful. Talk about that one that one moment back when you were 12. Sure. Well, when after Bobby Thompson hit the home run, I went outside to play with my friends, uh, all excited that the Giants have won. And um, 
It was in a housing project. <clears throat> we didn't pray in a baseball field. We prayed in a, uh, we called it a skating ring. It was a blacktop, and we painted bases. There was, uh, and uh, I was a left-handed pitcher. And I threw a pitch, and a line drive came back and hit me between the eyes. And that was the last thing that I ever saw. I thought it was the end of the world. I figured, what can a blind person do? The only image I had of a blind person was someone standing on a corner with a tin cup and a cane begging. I used to see that when we went into New York, and my mother and father gave me coins and my sister coins to throw into their tin can and help the blind. And I said, I used to feel so sorry for them. That's what I had to do for the rest of their life. And when I lost my sight, that was the one thing I vowed I would never, never, never do, that I wanted to become somebody special, that I could at least have a regular job. Now, you, when, you, when you find out this has happened, of course, you've got to deal with this and you've got to, you've got to work through it. When did you know for sure that you were not going to have your sight back? And what was it like dealing with the doctors, your friends, all the people you know? Well, the doctors, they, I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and I was in up until Christmas Eve uh, in 51. They tried to save my sight, but then hemorrhaging started, as well as detached retinas. And in those days, they didn't have the advancement that they have today for detached retinas, and they couldn't save the sight. And by the way, this tells you a lot, Ed, about science. I mean, this is why innovation matters. You know, today this same thing happens. And, Ed, would, would somebody have their sight today if it had probably, happened? Probably, yes, probably. Uh, my wife had detached retinas, and uh, they have something what they call buckles. They crimp it together somehow, and the rest of the retina that's working, they'll be able to see. And uh, so she has partial sight. It's amazing. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about, Ed, in the book, you talk about two people that help you get your groove back. And my goodness, what, a, what an effort this has to be, especially as a young boy. Uh, and it was your dad and this pop artist, and we're going to play just a, a touch of a, of a, of a song and a, and, a, and a musician that changed your life. If your sweetheart sends a letter of goodbye, it's no secret you'll feel better if you cry when waking from a bad dream. Don't you sometimes think it's real, but it's only false emotions that you feel. You know, I'm listening to those lyrics, and I wasn't sure. You know, I've heard the song a million times, but I was trying while I was listening to imagine I'm 12 and thinking, what would this love song have to do with lifting a young boy's spirit? But it's no secret, you'll feel better if you cry. And then he talks about recovering your dreams. And my goodness, that's exactly what you needed, wasn't it? Absolutely. And I was never into music, didn't follow music at all. And after I lost my sight, I started listening to music. Johnny Ray was the 
big, big name that year, 1951-52. And, uh, you know, my father, he read about Johnny Ray, and he told me, listen, you know, he had some hearing problems, and yet he went on to become a big star. He's a big music star today, selling records. And, you know, he didn't let his uh, disability stop him from what he wanted to do. He said, so, Ed, you know, you have dreams. You go on and you do what you want to do. And that was what my father always preached to me. You know, it's interesting. He was deaf and he became one of the great singers. And and that's so difficult for folks to wrap their head around. And then you've got the great Stevie Wonder and the great Ray Charles and Jose Feliciano. As other, as other inspirational mm-hmm. models. And you know, just as a side note, I was watching John Meacham the other day, and this tells you about my life. I'm watching him on C-SPAN talking about George Bush, the father. And it wasn't about mm-hmm. politics. It was about this man's life. And too often in this world, we, we put people in the boxes because of some political affiliation. We don't do that on this show. But he had something interesting to say. He said, John Meacham asked him, what was your greatest achievement? My goodness, he had done a lot in his life. And you could tell that running the CIA was big to him because this was a way to protect all Americans. But here was the biggest. It was he who championed the Americans with Disability Act. And And here's what he said. He said, I saw always the possibility in the afflicted. And they weren't afflicted. I learned more from them than they ever learned from me. And I wanted the sense of possibility to be with any parent and child who ever suffered some debility or, or, or disability that should not prevent them from living complete and beautiful and full lives. Uh, talk about uh, something like that and the importance of that possibility. That's uh, very important. That help, has helped people more today than when I was growing up. They didn't have the Disability Act, the ADA, the American Disability <clears throat> Act, but uh, today that helps other people uh, youngsters and, you know, elderly people, a lot of uh, older people lose their sight. And uh, therefore, they're helped through this act. Where before, you know, I was told you can't do things. You know, just sit back. And when I wanted to get into sports, and I was told you can't do it, you can't do it. Go sell newspapers on a stand or something like that, I was told. And I fought my way with the help of my parents and Phil Rizzuto, who gave me the encouragement, other people that were there. So uh, today, more disabled people are fortunate in order to get help. Yep, help, support, the laws are with them. And I think in the end, the examples, the human examples are there everywhere, Ed, and I think that that's a help. But you didn't have that as much then. Johnny Ray was one, that's clear, this deaf pop star and when we come back we're going to talk about your father we're also going to bring chris into this discussion as well this is lee habib and this is our american stories and we're talking with ed and chris lucas the book seeing home a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles when waking from a bad dream Don't you sometimes think it's real, but it's only false emotions that...
is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We're born again. There's new grass on the field. I just love that line. It's not the put me in coach part. We're born again. There's new grass on the field. And we're talking to Ed and Chris Luke. We're talking to Ed and Chris Lucas. The book is Seeing Home, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles. We were talking before the break about Johnny Ray and the influence it had on this, at the time, young boy's life who had just been uh, just been injured and rendered blind. And a lover of baseball, my goodness, this becomes difficult when you can't see. And what's he going to do with the rest of his life? That was one inspiration. The other was his dad. Talk about the role of your dad in your life. And in the end, your recovery. And this had to be, in the end, at a spiritual recovery, too. Well, my father... Um he would never let me give up. He always gave me positive uh, thoughts about anything I did and told me, you can do this. And when I started school, went on to high school, went on to college, uh, no matter what mark I got, he would say, you can do better. You can do better. He never uh, said, oh, you know, you're, you're blind. You did okay. He always said, you can do better. And uh, he was always encouraging me and also, you know, as far as faith, he was there praying and uh, having us pray as a family and um, went to church and made sure that we were very um, positive in our thinking of religion and having faith that things can happen, that pray all the time. And that's what we did. It's very powerful. You know, we were doing an hour on Jackie Robinson, and it turned out we had learned from his bride that the power of prayer is what sustained him and Branch Rickey through those two extraordinary difficult years in which Branch Rickey had told Jackie Robinson, you can play, and they're going to come at you hard. They're going to hate you. They're going to scream at you, and they're going to want a reaction. You can only play if you promise me you won't react. And my goodness, what a difficult thing to do. But that is the power of prayer in our lives and the power of focus and obedience because in the end, that's what prayer really is. It's we're listening to God for cues, but we're also, in the end, supplicating ourselves, and we're trying to obey uh, his commands, and that played a big role in your life. I wanted to bring in Chris, if I could, because uh, we sure. just learned about Ed, your dad. Chris, what did you learn from your dad uh, through all this? Wow, the better question is, what didn't I learn? I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, how can... I think the best thing I learned, the greatest lesson I ever got from him is any time I ever feel like I can't do something or I'm a little down in the dumps or a little low or, you know, now I'm parent myself and I say, boy, this is a struggle, I just look at him and say, look at all that he's gone through and, you know, not just one obstacle but obstacle after obstacle throughout his entire life and all these blockades that have been put in his way that who am I to say that I can't get through it? If he can do it, certainly I can do it. And that's part of the reason why we wrote the book together was because, you know, obviously the setting is baseball, and that's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of names that people recognize, but it it goes beyond that. It's a message to everybody. It's saying no matter what you want to do, you can do it. If he can do it, you can do it. You You know, Chris, your dad said something interesting, because I find this all the time. And my dad, who is a remarkable dad and did the same for me, always brought me into inner city neighborhoods, and he always wanted me to learn, A, how to play basketball, and he figured that's where I was going to learn. But he also wanted me to learn what happens with boys who don't have dads and to go in there with love and and help those boys and and be a guidance to that boy and talk at least about life and love and fatherhood. It was something that was absent. And something remarkable was said, and he said, look, 
I'm, I'm a dad. I, I love you. There's nothing you can't do. But I'm not letting you use your blindness as a crutch. I'm not going to let you be a victim. It sounds to me like that's what was going on, wasn't it, Chris? That's exactly what was happening. And, I, and again, I think that's a universal lesson. You know, you should not let anything be a crutch. You should, you know, there should be nothing in your life that you can say, I can't get past. Through the, the use of family, friends, faith, whatever it takes to, to get you through that, there, there are resources out there. So, uh, you know, it, I've been blessed in my life. I know there are people that have been more blessed, less blessed, but I, I've been able to have this amazing father and have this wonderful journey with him. I actually think it's the greatest blessing. And I, I think if you would look at America right now, forget right, left, rich, poor, the great gap in America is the fatherhood gap. And boys who, and girls who don't have fathers, my goodness. And you can look at all the data after that, guys. But that supposition of what happens to a world when we don't have fathers, and particularly loving fathers, can you, you can have a father who could have done the opposite. You could have had a father who said, hey, give up. You could have had a father who said, you're never going to amount to anything. And my goodness, there are a lot of people who have dads like that, uh, don't they? Sure. I mean, I, I see that, unfortunately, in, like you said, the inner city, we, Jersey City, is uh, an urban city, and I saw a lot of that, too. I did see people whose fathers had basically said to them, you know, eh, you're worthless, forget it, you're never going to climb out of where you are now, just stick to what you have, and I, I would always try, and I know my dad did the same thing, too. You know, you were talking about President Bush, people were the same thing, saying to people, look, you're not stuck where you are, you can get ahead, you just have to believe in yourself and, and work towards it. You bet, and by the way, just as a side note, one of my personal heroes, and we're going to be doing an hour on his life, uh, when his day of birth comes, is Bobby Hurley. And Bobby's, a, and for folks who don't know him, actually, this guy is such an important high school basketball coach that 60 Minutes did 30 minutes on him because he's not mm-hmm. just a basketball coach. He's a surrogate father at St. Anthony's in Jersey City, New Jersey, the little high school that could. And inner-city boys from all over the metropolitan area take one, two, and three trains for his discipline in the end. It's his discipline they come for. He doesn't treat them like victims. He doesn't ask about their sad lives. He inspires them to work and be the best versions of themselves. I don't know if you guys know Coach, but if you do, I'd love to hear a little bit about him as we then continue well, your stories. I, I grew up with his son, Bobby, um, so we're about the same age, and you know, he and I would have discussions all the time because my father was notable and in the news, and so was his father, and the lesson that he said he took from his father, the greatest lesson he ever got was that his dad had so many offers from colleges and the pros, and a lot of money was thrown his way that, you know, your family would be set for life. And yet he said it was so important to be where he was and making an impact. He said, if I can just change one life and put somebody in the right direction, that's worth any money that could be offered ever. So, you know, Bobby told me that was the greatest lesson he ever learned, that his brother Danny and all that. It's the same lesson I get from my dad. You know, money's not the it's, – it's great, it helps, but – it's more about how you influence people's lives and touch people's lives. All those people like Mr. Rizzuto and all the other folks that touch my father's life, it's making a difference in someone's life. Even when you don't realize it, that's the most important thing. Yeah, and it gives your life meaning, and that's so true. Coach Hurley turned it all down. I think it stunned people watching the 60-minute pieces. Like I had a friend who I was watching with. He goes, is he crazy? I go, no, are you crazy? Are you, are you not watching the same show I'm watching? Probation officer by day, what's he trying to do? Save those boys who made some dumb mistakes. When I make a dumb mistake, my father's taking care of it. These boys out in the streets, dumb mistake, no dad. He's a surrogate dad for a whole lot of people. When we come back, guys, we're going to dig into the rest of this story in the next, uh, in the next segment. And it's a beautiful story, and we recommend... 
folks, that you buy this book, Seeing Home, The Ed Lucas Story, A Blind Broadcaster's Story of Overcoming Life's Greatest Obstacles. And my goodness, there's a father-son story here and a father-son, father-son story here because what one father learned, one father learned from his father, he passed to his son. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all these stories, including our terrific two hours on Jackie Robinson and John Wooden, both of which I think taught about the art of love, the art of possibility, the art of mentoring, and being a father to boys even if you're not their father. And my goodness, in this country now, our boys need our love, male love, more than ever before. When we come back, more with Ed and Chris Lucas. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to the soundtrack from a really great movie, Field of Dreams. And it was so much more than a baseball movie. And this is so much more than a baseball story. The story of seeing home, the Ed Lucas story, a blind broadcaster's story of overcoming life's greatest obstacles, written by Ed and his son. Ed learned a lot from his dad. We just learned that Chris has learned more than he could have ever imagined. And what a lucky guy he is to have a dad. And a loving dad at that. Uh, guys, I wanted to talk, uh, possibly, Ed, your take on a, a couple of other influences in your life. Tell a story about a lesson that Sister Rose Magdalene taught you. Yes, well, I was in school, and we stayed there from Sunday night to Friday afternoon. And one uh, Friday afternoon, my father came to pick me up for the weekend. And as uh, I came downstairs with my suitcase. He said to me, Ed, you have to put these uh, galoshes on. It's snowing like crazy out, and we should have over a foot and a half by midnight. So he said, you stand up against the wall and uh, put your foot out, and I'll get on my knees and push the galoshes one way, and you push the other way, and we'll get them on. So while we're doing that, Sister Rose Magdalene walks off the elevator. And she turns and she sees my father and she goes, Mr. Lucas, what are you doing? He says, oh, sister, I don't know if you had a chance to look outside to see how it's snowing and how much snow we have out there. So I'm having Ed put on his galoshes <clears throat> and uh, this way, you know, we'll be able to go home. She said, oh, she said, let me help you. And as he was on his knees pushing, she walked over to him, gave him a push in the chest and pushed him back and said, he's only blind. He's not handicapped, so let him put it on himself. And when he does, you can leave. An hour and a half later, we left. It's fantastic. And, you know, sometimes when we help people, 
with good intentions, we actually can, I think the moral of that story is we can actually help the people we're trying to hurt, the people we're trying to help. Let's talk about your mom, Ed. What was she doing behind your and your dad's back during this whole time that would impact your life more than she could possibly have known? Oh, yes. She was writing letters to uh, everybody from ballplayers to uh, politicians, everyone trying to help me and advance me. <clears throat> she was always there pushing me along and saying, you know, you can do it, you can do it. And she did that to the day she died. You know, it's interesting. We did a, a segment when Yogi Berra died. We, uh, had, we, we basically did a dramatic reading of George Will's great column. And he wrote about these Italians, these three Italian guys, DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, and Phil Rizzuto, at a time when Italian-Americans were really struggling in America and they weren't actually treated quite the same as lots of other immigrants. Uh, and DiMaggio was like, he was just, it's so hard to understand who he is now. But think Michael Jordan of baseball. Think elite royalty of baseball. Talk about Joe DiMaggio in your life. Joe DiMaggio, after I lost my sight and became friends with Rizzuto, I went to a Yankee game, and um, he said to me, I want you to make a friend of mine. We went into a special room, and uh, DiMaggio was there. And he introduced me to Joe, and uh, I was thrilled to meet him. And he uh, said to me, hey, tell me, uh, what kind of pasta do you like? And I automatically said, Chef Boyardee. <laughs> he said, Chef Boyardee. He said, get this Irishman a bowl of pasta bazoo. He said, you have to eat better than that. I was ready to talk baseball and that Italian cuisine. <laughs> well, let me tell you, he taught you how to eat properly, which is, you know, no disrespect to my Irish <laughs> friends, but... I don't race right. to Irish food, but boy, pasta vazul, once you're good in there, you're on your way to a, a whole new way of thinking about food. So you have, access, you have access to all these famous players, and more importantly, their love for you has got to move you. But how do you decide to take the leap to becoming a broadcaster? And more importantly, Ed, how did you get there? Well, after graduating high school, I, I started a club in high school called the Diamond Dusters at the New York Institute for the Blind. And I invited ball players up, and I had, was very fortunate to have Wendy McDaniel, of course, Phil Rizzuto, Jackie Robinson, um, and, and many others to um, come up and visit. And with this club, we had people read baseball things, stories to us, and talk about it. And I wanted to get into baseball by interviewing these ball players and going back to the day DeRosa had me interview the players and meet the players at the polo grounds. I enjoyed doing that, and I said, this is what I want to do. And I was accepted at Seton Hall University, and uh, I went there for four years, and they had a radio station that I was on, WSOU, and I had a show called Around the Bases with Ed Lucas, and I was able to go to the Yankee games and interview some of the players and had them on tape on my show. Ed, you brought, it's it's clear, a certain level of humaneness to the baseball world that broadcasters had not offered before. And again, I, uh, your blindness actually becomes an asset in this respect. And from what I can see, almost every interview you ask the subject what adversities they faced. And because of your own adversities, folks felt comfortable opening up to you 
uh, to connect on a deeper level. Let's listen to one such interview with Dave Rigetti, and then, and that's uh, one of the great Yankee players, and then get your reaction to it. First question I want to ask you is about adversity. Uh, people have disabilities and they overcome them. You can see that I have uh, a blind as a bat. There are others that have uh, disabilities that you can't see. And any adversities in your life that you can speak of? Well, I don't know if folks know, but um, you know, I have 16-year-old triplets, and uh, they were all premature, born just under three pounds, all three of them. And all had a number of issues, including uh, some slight brain damage in each case, where one daughter ended up with some epilepsy, and basically uh, she had some trouble on her left side from the, from her brain damage, and uh, basic, and, but still uh, played high school volleyball, managed to do it one-handed, which is pretty incredible. A tough kid. Tough kid. And listen to Dave talk about his girl, and who would have even thought to ask him that question? But you did, Ed. Yes, well, I was very close to David Getty. He was a wonderful, wonderful friend and still is a wonderful friend to me. And he um, came up to me after he had the children and told me that they were disabled. He didn't um, you know, talk to too many people about it. And he just said, I want to thank you for giving me the strength to be able to handle my children and look forward that they will be able to be successful because I watched you around the Yankee clubhouse for so many years. And um, I always felt great about that. And this one day I went up to him and I said, David, I know that you never talk to anyone about your children. And I would like to do a, you know an interview with you and put it on YouTube so people can see it. If you're willing to talk about your children, he said to me, I'd be happy to talk to you, Ed, because I know that you would know to ask the right questions and not be stupid about it. And that's how that interview came about. Yeah, not to be sensational about it. You weren't doing it for the gore. You weren't doing it for the headline. You were doing it for the love. And I think when things come from that space, Ed, it's always a really a good space. You know, there's this uh, really great French uh, interviewer. And in the 1950s and 60s, a dear friend of mine told me the reason his show is so good is because essentially he started every interview with this question. What are you going through? He actually believed Mm -hmm. that everybody was going through something or somebody close to them was, which meant they were if they had any kind of human heart. And everybody wanted to come on this guy's show to talk about what they were going through because they trusted him. And of course, it turns out he had so much in his life. He was going through, and he was always perfectly happy to share it with folks. And that gave people hope that they could get through what they were getting through. I want to talk to Chris, if I could. Chris, you know, you're, 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 you're learning something always from your dad, but I think in the end, your, your, your greatest, greatest takeaway from all this, and particularly writing the book with your dad, which had to be different than knowing him, actually getting this on paper had to give you in some respects, an even deeper appreciation for what you thought you might have already known. It gave me a much deeper appreciation. You know, we've gone on, we went on a book tour all across the country, and, and question would come up, people would say, what was the process like? And my advice to people is, even if you're not writing a book, sit down with your parents or your grandparents, if they're still around, or your aunts or your uncles, and even if you've heard the stories a thousand times before, share them again, because you learn so much every time you hear it, and 
you can pass that on to your children and your grandchildren. And there were some things, I, for instance, my grandparents, they both offered, each one of them, to have one of their eyes cut out to donate so that my father could see again. And it wow. wasn't medically possible back then, but I had never heard that story before. And, you know, we all want to do things for our children, but that goes way beyond. And to hear something like that, you know, it's... it's I'm glad we were able to get all that into the book and share all these wonderful stories and reach beyond baseball and just tell a story that will hopefully touch a lot of people. Well, you know, that's what we do here in our American stories. My, I was always an admirer of my Jewish friends because the Jewish people know their story. I think that's why they're so intimidating to so many people. They know their story from Abraham. They teach it to their kids. Their kids know it. And look at what those folks accomplish in their lives because they know their story. And America needs to know its story. And... Ed, Chris, thanks for sharing your stories with us. It moves us to be better people. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Thank you, guys, both of you. When will this Thank be, you, Ed? You know? uh, we'll get you all that information, sir. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys.